It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. Thanks for making me part of your day. The show is made possible by patrons such as Sarah and Frank, Karen, Manuel, Jeff and Nicole, Chris, Matthew, Easy, Daniel, Lisa, Janet. Thanks for being patrons. Uh, they went to the PeteCallenerShow.com, clicked on the link, and became patrons. And so now they get exclusive content. They get to participate in the live streams. It's a lot of fun. We do those every Thursday. Um, and um, also they're going to get a gift before the end of the year. I've said too much. So... Uh, Persuasion is a new publication, and it's not just something that I do every single day here on the podcast. It's also a, it's also a, it's also a publication. It is kind of center left, but uh, their goals, I think, are pretty universal. Uh, they seek to build a free society in which all individuals get to pursue a meaningful life, irrespective of who they are. I agree with that. Uh, They believe in the importance of the social practice of persuasion and are determined to defend free speech and free inquiry against all of its enemies. I agree with that. And they say we seek to persuade rather than to mock or troll those who disagree with us. I uh, well, yeah, I'm. I'm working on that. Okay. I am working. <laughs> I, I'm i an all of the above kind of guy. I think I could do all three of those things, but I appreciate their efforts. <laughs> um, the reason I tell you about persuasion is that there is a piece, the first actually in a series that they are doing uh, over uh, talking about uh, over the past four years, Donald Trump staged a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. So now what does the future of the party look like? OK, so this is uh, a series that they are undertaking, and we're going to talk with the author of the first piece in that series in a minute. First, let me tell you about Mattress Man. They are uh, presenters of the show today, mattressmanstores.com. And if you are looking for a quality mattress at a great price, then Mattress Man is where you need to go. This is where I went to get my mattress. Christy and I picked up our king-size memory foam mattress. It's fantastic. We say it's like sleeping on a marshmallow because you lay on top of the thing and you just kind of sink into it and it just supports like all parts of your body as what you know wherever you're laying into the mattress it's fantastic now maybe you want a firmer mattress look again i'm an all of the above kind of guy if you want a different mattress that's totally fine the sleep consultants at mattress man will help you pick the right one for you and during the black friday deal going on right now they've got free Biltmore mattress box springs when you buy one of the mattresses. These are the mattresses that are at the hotel and the inn at the Biltmore estate. Uh, and they're made by Restonic in Fayetteville, so they're American-made. They also have free adjustable bases with the purchase of select mattresses as well. So if you want to... Uh, you know, raise the head of your bed, raise the feet of your bed, which is great for circulation, by the way. Uh, you can also pick up a queen-size gel hybrid mattress, part of their bed-in-a-box deal, for just $299. That is a fantastic offer. And... 
they have the triple zero financing deal. Zero down, zero APR for 24 months, and zero payments for 90 days. Go check them out in-store. Uh, any of the four locations in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville, they ship nationwide, uh, and they have five-star local delivery service with a 120-day comfort guarantee. You can't lose. Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better. So joining me now is Jeffrey Cabba Service. He is the Director of Political Studies at the Niskanen Center. He's the author of Rule and Ruin, The Downfall of Moderation and the Destruction of the Republican Party from Eisenhower to the Tea Party. And you can follow him on Twitter at Rule and Ruin. And welcome, uh, Jeffrey. Thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks. Good to be with you. Sure. So uh, you started off this series uh, that was that's being put together by Persuasion, and uh, you started off part one uh, with a piece entitled Trump ripped through the GOP. And here's what comes next. So this is right. This is all sort of forward looking uh, speculative, right? These ideas of what the Republican Party might emerge looking like. So I guess first off to know where you're kind of looking ahead we probably should ask you where you came from. So I gathered from your Twitter feed, you're kind of never Trumper <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I fall, I fall in that general category. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've been a registered Republican for a long time. Um, and I'm a historian of the Republican party. Uh, and I see Trump as more of a departure from it than a continuation. So how so? Well, um, if you actually go back into not that long ago in relatively speaking, uh, my book starts in 1960 and at that time, the Republican Party was split into four main factions. Um, and the conservative faction, as we would now think of it, was actually the smallest of those four. Um, even the liberal Republicans was a larger faction than the conservatives. Um, and moderates and what uh, I would call sort of generic Midwestern Robert Taft-style conservatives were by far the bigger parts of the party. So what's happened over time is that this one faction, the conservative faction, grew to the point that it took over the party completely – um, changed it from being a factional party into an ideological party. And that in turn made it ripe for takeover by someone like Donald Trump, who isn't really Republican at all and has no connection to most of the traditions that defined the party since its founding in the 19th century. So you break down, um, you say the fate of the Republican Party depends on how many of the voters who voted for him, 70 plus million people, um, how many are going to continue to go along with him on this ride, right? This You say there's a minority of Republicans, the Never Trumpers, that have resisted Trump's chaos. You you, you have another group called the MAGA Faithful uh, that have embraced it. Uh, and then there's another portion uh, that puts up with the costs of Trumpism to get what they see as the benefits. And I guess if I have to I'm probably more in that camp, <laughs> in that third camp. Mm-hmm. Just for full disclosure, I'm not even—I'm not a registered Republican. I haven't been for 20 years. Um, more of a lowercase l libertarian kind of a guy, and I loathe Donald Trump in the primary. But after he won, it was like, okay, well, let's see what he does. And he basically was who I thought he was. He behaved how I thought he would behave, um, which is, was kind of one of the things that struck me was how many people were surprised at everything that he did over the course of four years, like in the state of perpetual shock at who he is. <laughs> and I just kind of wonder, mm-hmm. haven't you been watching him <laughs> uh, yeah. at all? So these are the three camps. So uh, why... Um, why are there only these three camps? How did you kind of how did you come up with these three categories? Well, you know, historians are probably not the right people to predict the future. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I mean, 
there's a saying about history, which is that it doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think in some ways you could compare Trump to some of these past figures who've really shaken up the party, uh, particularly from a populist direction. And you can think about people like, well, I guess Joseph McCarthy, if you want to put that spin on it, but more like Barry Goldwater, who was the Republican Party's nominee in 1964. Um, And unlike Trump, Goldwater really did lead the Republican Party into a massive defeat in that presidential election. It wasn't just he lost to Lyndon Johnson in a landslide. It was that Republicans lost all the way down the ballot. Um, And in this case, it's different because Trump, although he lost pretty soundly, particularly when you take into account that he's an incumbent president uh, with all the advantages that entails, uh, the Republican Party didn't do so badly down ballot. Um, I, I could have the exact figure wrong, but I think that of the 27 or so Republicans who um, Cook Report and some others listed in their uh, toss-up to lean Republican category, all of them won re-election mm. uh, or won outright. Um, so it really was an unexpectedly strong year for the party down ballot. Um, and, you know, to me, this suggests that there's some differentiation going on, even within the Republican ranks. There are the people who will follow Donald Trump into hell. Um, there are the people who will vote for uh, a Democratic president, but will, you know, to some extent, go along with the Republican Party because they still think of themselves as Republican. And in that category, I put a lot of people in the college-educated suburbs where the Democrats have done really well, not just this year, but also in 2018. And then there's a lot of people, you know, who were perfectly happy to vote for George W. Bush or John McCain or Mitt Romney, uh, and Trump is just a bridge too far for them, but they really haven't changed their views that much. I heard it said, maybe I get your response to this or your reaction to it, I heard it said that only Trump could have beaten Hillary Clinton and only Biden could have beaten Trump. Do you, do you think there's some merit to that idea? I do think there's some truth to that. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton was a historically unpopular presidential candidate by every standard except Donald Trump. He was actually even more unpopular. Right. <laughs> but as it turned out, you know, uh, a lot of particularly the late breaking and undecided voters decided that they disliked Hillary Clinton more than they disliked Trump. Uh, and this time around, that dynamic went in Biden's favor. But, you know, I do think that if the Democrats uh, left faction had had their way and nominated Bernie Sanders, then a lot of the people who, you know, like I said, are basically sometime Republicans, maybe they have voted Republican in the past pretty regularly, but they just couldn't stomach Donald Trump. I think Bernie might have been a bridge too far for them. And of the other Republicans, you know, I just don't know that they would have been able to mobilize the same kind of coalition that Joe Biden mobilized within the Democratic ranks because he put together older um, African-American voters. He put together these college-educated, mostly professional voters, mostly in the suburbs. And then he was able to peel away just enough of the white working class to make the difference. Um, And so, you know, I find it hard to believe there was any other presidential candidate on the Democratic side who could have put together that kind of a coalition. And had it not been Donald Trump, um, they probably, a lot of those college-educated suburban folks might not have peeled away I do believe that there was that there is a lot to be said. I think there were a lot of people who were just kind of, you know, embarrassed to have to admit that they supported him or voted for him. They may go in there and vote for him, but they, they're not happy about divulging that uh, at their PTA meetings. You know, it's it's tricky here. I mean, I think none of us really even now have a good handle on why Trump won. And it's going to take us a while to sort out why he lost. Um, a lot of people right now are relying on exit polls for their hot takes. Yes. Exit polls. You know, in the first 
months or even year uh, after an election are really notoriously unreliable. Um, but, you know, I think we're in a situation in this country where we are narrowly divided. Uh, it's not like, you know, there's a really winning side or the other. We have alternated control, not just of the presidency, but of control of the Congress, uh, really, for the last 30, 40 years. Um, and, you know, clearly in this election, it was not just that there were some people who didn't like Trump. There's also a lot of, you know, people who consider themselves to be basically on the side of the angels, but who were worried about the progressive uh, tendencies on the Democratic side. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, in some ways, it's a very unsatisfactory outcome to get divided government like this. Um, but maybe that's what we want as a people. Um, and, you know, like I said, I'm not sure of the shape of the future going forward. But if I had to guess, it's going to be mostly divided government, to some extent, dysfunctional government, but maybe some improvement uh, at the margins between more or less the factions of center left and center right. Which, uh, yeah, I, as a limited government guy, I'm totally fine with a government that does very little. I'm so okay with that. So <laughs> people, I know there are a lot of people who are concerned, like government should get stuff done. Like I'm not on board with that just as a default position. Uh, so I'm okay with that. Um, and I, I do wonder, and I was, uh, at the time I was, you know, hosting a, uh, an afternoon drive show on the radio conservative station during the 2016 election. I had these arguments with, uh, Trump supporters at that time and uh, over the next basically four years afterwards. But uh, the, it, it kind of drove me nuts to some degree because of the arguments, the sort of circular logic that would be employed. And what I kind of came to conclude was that they were tired. Most of the folks were just tired of feeling ignored and they were tired of being called racists and sexists and, uh, you know, uh, homophobes and transphobes and all of this stuff. They were tired of that. And so they said, you know what, we're just going to we're going to hire somebody that's going to fight them the way they fight us. They just don't care anymore. And, and I, I said, now, just be careful if that's the if that's the course you want to go down. I just think if you hire more monsters to fight monsters, you just end up with a lot more monsters. You know, that, that's that's my yeah, hot I'm sure, take. I'm sure, it was very, <laughs> I'm sure it was very satisfying to a lot of people who have felt, you know, looked down on and despised by the cultural arbiters of the country to have someone like Donald Trump to be there you know, a baseball bat wrapped with barbed wire. Mm -hmm. uh, he certainly gave back even worse than he got. Um, but, you know, I've never inclined to the belief that it was just cultural enemy or angst or racism or any of those other attitudes that was responsible for Trump getting elected. I think there were real problems, uh, particularly in, you know, the heartland, if you want to call it that, that led to the kind of discontent that led people to turn to someone like Trump. And my major criticism of Trump actually is not the tweeting or the insults or all the rest of it. It really is just that um, he was elected to do something about those problems. And for the most part, he didn't do anything about them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the opioid epidemic, which, again, is indicative of a lot of other real problems, um, hasn't uh, gone away. Um, you're seeing still 50,000 deaths a year, which is down from 70,000, but it's still a terrible toll. I mean, the United States life expectancies have been going down, which is unique among developed countries and unique among the United States own history since a century ago. Um, you really do have this emptying out of the post-industrial towns and the rural areas uh, in this country. Um, and that ultimately is not healthy for us as a nation. Um, but, you know, the question a lot of people are asking now is, can there be kind of Trumpism without Trump? Can there be a populist who actually will try to use government 
to solve some of these problems, or at least to ameliorate some of them. And that's the the $64,000 question going forward. More with Jeffrey Cabas Service in a minute. First, let me tell you about the real estate agent that Christy and I are using uh, to buy our house. And that is Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. She uh, has walked us through the whole process. We're looking to um, build to suit. It's not custom building. It's like there's a developer that's building a housing development. And so, uh, you know, we picked a lot. And so uh, we get to make some, you know, picks and choices on various aspects of the build. But we didn't know anything about doing that process. Rowena and her all-star powerhouse team did. They've been guiding us the whole way. Now, if you're looking to sell your house, She outsells 99% of the agents in the state of North Carolina. She's the only agent that we called or would ever think about calling, uh, and you should as well. 333-4483. That's 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com. Give her a call and then start packing. All right, Jeffrey Cabba Service, in your uh, in your piece for persuasion, you lay out three scenarios of where the GOP goes from here. But uh, a moment ago, you said, can there be Trumpism without Trump, a populist who uses government to ameliorate some of these problems? Uh, I have a note here in scenario number two where I said, imagine if Trump were actually good at politics. <laughs> and <laughs> right, because to me, like what you just described right there is, yeah, like that was sort of the big uh, the big disappointment is, and, and I kind of see it right now also with the, the, the you know, we're going to prove election fraud. And I keep, and my position has been, okay, well, let's hear the evidence presented in court. Yep. And I keep waiting and I keep waiting and I keep waiting. And at some point I'm like, okay, well, you guys now are no different than the folks who said Russia uh, hacked the election results to make Trump the president. And I wasn't on board with that, so I can't be on board with this. Um, it just it, and so I say, just imagine if he were good at that at the at the policy side of stuff. If he was a movement conservative, then maybe he would have been able to actually get some of these things done, as you mentioned. Well, well, I, I agree with almost everything you said up till the end. Oh, um, <laughs> about the bit about being a movement conservative. Okay, you know, I mean. In 2016, every other candidate on the Republican side for the presidency besides Trump was a movement conservative. And the things they wanted to do were more or less what conservatives have been saying we should do since Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Cut taxes, um, you know, let the, the wealth trickle down from the better off. And that was not what Donald Trump said, and that was not what people by this point wanted to hear. Um, they were tired of the Republican Party's donor class calling for the kind of policies that made the upper class better off and did nothing for those lower down. Trump told them all the things he wanted to do uh, for them, which they loved to hear. Mm-hmm. He told them he was going to bring a tighter labor market, which he did in a lot of ways before the pandemic. He told them he was going to cut uh, illegal immigration, which would uh, remove a source of competition for lower end jobs. You could argue that he did that. But see, I was one of the ones taken in. I I thought, you know, having been elected president, why wouldn't Trump do the things that would get him reelected, which, you know, at the same time would also help the people who elected him. So in his first week in the White House, he called in the leaders of some of the biggest uh, construction unions and building companies and talked up this, you know, trillion dollar or two trillion dollar infrastructure plan to rebuild the infrastructure that we have that undeniably costs us billions of dollars in lost productivity and is increasingly becoming a shambles. And I really thought that was what was going to happen. He was going to buck the Republican establishment. He was going to go with his own populist agenda, and it would be popular among Democrats as well as Republicans, and it would lead to him getting reelected by big margins. But instead, what does he go with? He went to the plan to repeal Obamacare, 
which a lot of his supporters actually depended on and to some extent even liked when they were told that it was something other than Obamacare. And then he went along with this big tax cut that delivered nearly all of its benefits to the top section of corporate leadership. So he just didn't govern as a Trumpist in a weird way. Um, and, you know, there is this question still out there as to whether someone can be more faithful to the Trump program than Trump himself was. Well, yeah, I think to answer the earlier question that's related, I don't think Trumpism survives without Donald Trump. I think he is unique. I don't because we saw other candidates, other elected officials try their hand at it and they're it doesn't work. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, I don't know what it is about him. I, maybe it's, you know, the the perception, at least, that he's a billionaire. I don't know. Uh, and maybe people believe him because of that. Uh, maybe it's a New Yorker thing. I'm not sure. I just don't see anybody that has that kind of skill set. Um, on, on, I mean, because on the campaign trail, like, I think he speaks in word salad, but everybody else seems to love him. So, well, uh, the people that go to his rallies, I guess I should clarify. <laughs> but, but I mean, that, 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 so that rally culture really is a kind of counterculture now. Mm-hmm. And people can't get it anywhere else, and they love it, and they're going to want more of it. So this goes into uh, the scenarios here. So you you outline three different scenarios uh, with, again, as you mentioned, the disclaimer that you're a historian, uh, probably not best suited for predictions of the future, but uh, the MAGA scenario. So what is the, well, I guess I'll give the headlines on the MAGA scenario you've got. And number two is the Republican Party professionals scenario. And then the third is the outreach scenario. So the MAGA scenario, uh, give us the high points uh, of, of what this is about. Well, without going through kind of every point I made, sure. uh, the big picture there is that this is a scenario in which Donald Trump succeeds in persuading a large part of the Republican Party that this election was stolen from him, that Joe Biden is therefore an illegitimate president, um, that American democracy is corrupt and broken, and that um, no Republican can cooperate in any way with the Biden presidency. Um, and, you know, this is a kind of approach that can make a lot of Donald Trump's really hardcore supporters uh, very happy. They will feel themselves to be locked in this existential battle, although I doubt they would put it that way. Um, but, you know, it could actually lead to our falling apart as a country and certainly uh, a complete and utter breakdown in our collective faith in both our government and our democracy. Um yeah, and so I don't see that as a good situation, but I don't think it's actually the likeliest situation, to be honest, because, it, as you said, it does depend on evidence being produced, which so far simply has not been produced because it doesn't exist. Well, I don't even know if it requires the evidence. I think a lot of the people that you're talking about, it doesn't, it, they don't need evidence um, in order to believe those things that you just outlined. In fact, when I was reading it, I saw a lot of similarities with sort of the way the left has behaved in the first years of Trump. In the from from 2016 through essentially this year, a lot of the things the way you described are like if I just swap out Trump for you know uh, Clint or uh, Biden and vice versa, then it it works as well. Um, and I think it's been incredibly destructive. Not just I mean yes, there's the Trump side of the equation, but I think the way the reaction to him has also been incredibly destructive, and has I think convinced a lot of those people that are in that uh, the the MAGA crowd. I think it has. Uh, it, it has gotten them, if you, you know, it, it, it put them in this position of defending Trump no matter what. And so everything is now rejected. Any kind of uh, opposition is or criticism is rejected as born of bad faith. You know, I think there is some analogies you could draw to, for example, 
the Democrats who said that Trump wasn't really their president, that he wasn't legitimately elected, um, or to people like Stacey Abrams, who claimed that she really did win and never did concede defeat to Brian Kemp in mm-hmm. the Georgia race. But I think this is actually worse and more destructive. I think, you know, the QAnon phenomenon, which grows out of, you know, this kind of Trump conspiracy thinking, you know, again, doesn't just say the Democrats are wrong in their ideas or that they're the opponents who must be defeated. It says, you know, they are evil that must be exterminated because these are, you know, Satan worshiping child eaters. Um, And how can you actually come to any kind of agreement with such people? So that's really, truly destructive of national unity, uh, even any kind of semblance of national unity and democracy. And that worries me much more than just some of the traditional political things. Yeah, I don't know. I've been in talk radio for a very long time, and I've heard a lot of the same kind of rhetoric from the left directed at the right. I've been I mean, I've been targeted for that very with those very kinds of words, evil this. And again, when you call somebody a racist and sexist for, you know, 40 years, (laughs) I think that I think that's destructive to the discourse. I don't think I don't I don't think anybody wants to I know I certainly don't want to make common cause with somebody who thinks that way about me. Right. Why would I? I'm not going to spend my time trying to convince somebody that their notions of me are based on an assumption which comes from their belief in what my political views are. And they just lump like they would lump me in with you, I assume, even though we probably disagree on a great many things. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, if, if there's any plea that I would make to, like I said, some of the Trump hardcore, it's simply that, you know, you were upset at not being listened to, at being ignored, at having stereotypes imposed on you that didn't answer the reality of who you are. Well, please extend that consideration to your fellow Americans now. Uh, you're an optimist. <laughs> I'm an optimist. You're an optimist. OK. Um, so you write in your you write in this piece. It's uh, usually a sign of weakness when a political movement stokes the intensity of its base rather than trying to reach out for new converts. So uh, I was curious about this line. Uh, why is that? How so? H- how is it a sign of weakness to stoke the intensity of the base uh, and rather than reach out for new converts? Well, the, the example I drew was Barry Goldwater in 1964. Um, and, you know, Goldwater told the most conservative people in the country everything they wanted to hear about how it was impossible to actually compromise with Democrats, let alone moderates, um, and that being super extreme was no vice. Um, and, you know, that made a certain number of people very happy, and they were willing to give up their family lives and their jobs uh, and sacrifice everything they had in terms of time and money and energy for their man. Um, but they lost big time because there just aren't enough people like that to support any kind of super intense ideological faction. And that's equally as true on the left as it is on the right, which is why it was Joe Biden who won the Democratic primaries instead of Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, the, the, the essence of wisdom is realizing that most people in this country are somewhere in the middle. And the only way that you, uh, a, a kind of conservative or progressive person, can actually get any kind of traction for your candidacy or your ideas is to reach out to at least some of them and win them over. And that's exactly what Ronald Reagan did, even though he nominally was supporting the same kind of conservatism that Barry Goldwater did. He was a much more popular candidate because he reached out beyond the base. And he told the people who supported him, the people who uh, disagree with us, are not enemies to be destroyed. They are perhaps future converts for our cause. Um, And so that's what I mean about why it's a sign of political weakness when you stoke your base to a fever pitch. Donald Trump could have won re-election pretty easily if he'd simply tried to reach out more 
aggressively to new constituencies, not just the people who voted for him, throughout his presidency. And again, you kind of saw some of how he succeeded even despite himself with some of the election returns we are seeing where mm-hmm. he actually made pretty big gains among Hispanics mm-hmm. and to some extent among African-American men. You know, the potential was there, and I don't think he would have had to have really have modified his approach too much to have had a lot more political success than he did have. We're talking with Jeffrey Cabot Service from the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, let me tell you about the Husqvarna automower first. The Husqvarna auto mower. It's like a Roomba for your yard, okay? 10% off while supplies last at General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. Uh, They're at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. They're family-owned and operated for three generations. They have all of the tools for any project that you're looking to do, and you don't have to buy them either. You can rent them. But if you want this auto mower, which basically just drives around your yard, keeps your grass cut uniformly all the time without ever having to really mess with it, uh, it goes and it recharges it itself. And by the way, yes, if somebody tries to steal it, there's a GPS locator in it. It also shuts down, so you can't even use the thing. Uh, and the GPS means you're going to be able to find the thief. Um, this is this is what to get somebody who mows the yard, but really doesn't like mowing the yard, especially if it's a big yard. right? If it's a pretty large yard, you don't ever have to worry about this again. How awesome would that be for a Christmas present? 10% off while supplies last at General Equipment Rental. If you are thinking of other types of power tools for that uh, special someone in your life for Christmas, then uh, think also General Equipment Rental, licensed Husqvarna and Honda Outdoor Power Equipment Sales and service provider, the official one here. So uh, get all of your equipment service and repairs done at General Equipment Rental as well. GeneralRents.com. That's the website. General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. And think outside your toolbox. So do you think that there is a realignment of the parties going on right now? Um, you know, to some extent, I think there is. Um, and it's not just that the Republican Party has become the party of the working class which is usually what you hear about when you hear talk of realignment. Yeah. Uh, and it's true, you know, 60 to 70 percent of the Republican base now is non-college educated voters, which is our best proxy for the working class. And of course, you know, the Democrats used to be known as the party of the working class under Franklin Roosevelt and for many decades after that. But you also have this change going on now, which is that college educated professionals used to vote pretty reliably Republican. And they really have turned significantly against Donald Trump and to some extent against the Republican Party as well. And it was that kind of realignment that really spelled um, Donald Trump's uh, defeat in this past election and may spell big trouble for the Republican Party going forward. So, you know, there's a lot of people in the Republican strategist side who want to win back some of those disaffected college educated voters. But there's a real tension between the kind of approach that would be necessary to do that while also pleasing the working class base. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, this is sort of the Republican Party professional scenario, scenario number two. You think this is the most likely scenario that the Republican Party uh, sort of uh, proceeds through in the coming years? You know, I think there's going to be some people who are the party strategists who are going to convince themselves that the last four years were a big aberration and all they need to go back to is the kind of same Reaganite appeals That'll win them the same kind of numbers that they were winning, well, on the congressional side before Trump. And I think that's an illusion um, Mm. because, number one, I think people who like Trump are going to want more Trump or at least someone who's trying to do their best Trump imitation. And they're not going to be 
uh, happy with the conventional Republicans of decades past. And they're also not going to be happy with the, uh, you know, what again I'm calling the donor class agenda that really had dictated the Republican Party's approach of tax cuts at all costs um, and cutting social programs that the working class depends on and cutting infrastructure and all the rest of it. Uh, I just don't think there's any going back to that program. So there's going to have to be some kind of balance between the Reaganite approach and the Trumpite approach if the party's going to have any real success, um, certainly in, in the congressional level. Well, and not to mention, you're still going to have Donald Trump out there, even if he doesn't run for re-election, right, uh, in 2024. Uh, he's still going to be there. And I, I don't know what that's going to look like. you got a primary field of Republican candidates. And if he's not even running, is he going to be taking shots at various candidates and tanking their <laughs> their their runs in the primaries before they even get a chance <laughs> to get going uh, with his, you know, with his kind of trademark branding of people. I don't know. Um, I, I think that's very plausible. You know, yeah. if Donald Trump announces, uh, I, I mean, he'll never concede that he lost this election, but he could well just retreat to Mar-a-Lago and say, guess what? I'm running again for president in 2024. I am fully entitled to do this under the Constitution. This Republican Party is mine, and don't any of you pretenders dare to try to go for the nomination. You know, he's mm-hmm. going to have a lot of people, if he says that, who will follow him. And whenever a Marco Rubio or a Josh Hawley or a Tom Cotton or a Nikki Haley pokes up their head and starts making campaign-style appearances in Iowa or New Hampshire, you're going to get a lot of Trumpian invective, and his supporters are also going to come after those people. Yeah. The final scenario is the outreach scenario. This is, I guess, probably, is this the most optimistic scenario that you that, that you conjured? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's optimistic because I'm not convinced that people actually care that much right. <laughs> uh, when they go to the election booth in terms of policies. I don't think they think about it that much. But, you know, people do want to feel like things are okay, um, that the American dream is still alive, and that things are going to be better for their children than they were or are right now. And the only way that actually happens, I think, is through policies that keep us both a, a prosperous nation and one in which people from all points on the socioeconomic spectrum can have a shot at success. And that's you know, why I think the Republican Party needs to be a responsible party. It needs to cooperate with Democrats to make some of these um, things happen. It needs to address some of the common dangers that face us as well. And so you you talk about uh, the 2020 elections having strengthened the hand of comparatively moderate Republicans. So there is some room for pragmatic negotiation. Um, But I guess I guess I wonder, and this is maybe in reference to what, what you expressed as some level of optimism. Like, do you think that people actually vote based on policies? And I I'm. I'm not so sure anymore. I think we are so engrossed in the culture war. And I I think that matters, by the way. I mean, I do think the culture war matters. I think it has just consumed everything. I'm not so sure that the policies matter anymore. You know, I I know what you're saying. But uh, just to give you an example, I was in Charleston, South Carolina yesterday. And, you know, Charleston's a coastal city. It's having really big flood problems, and those problems do appear to be connected to climate change. And it's all very well to say, well, I don't believe in climate change, but what if you're actually sitting in your house and your furniture is rising up around you? 
you know, you actually want to do something about that. You want to not have that water inundate your house and all that you worked to build. So, you know, I think people will turn to policy when it's clear that culture war isn't solving their problems. Uh, and it's clear that something has to be done. But, you know, it may take a while before people get to the point where they feel that problems are so big that they have no choice but to get serious about them. Yeah. Anything else that you want to add? I know I've kept you a little bit later than I promised. Is there anything you'd like to add that you think is important or interesting on this that you'd like people to know before we let you go? You know, um, the center right is not really a great place to be in the sense (laughs) that everyone's going to attack you, right? Right. (laughs) And you win very few victories. Um, And the victories you do win feel kind of small a lot of times. Um, But there's a certain satisfaction in doing what you think is the right thing and putting country above party. And that's, you know, what I think I've met a lot of people who feel that way. I'm part of the Braver Angels organization, which is trying to depolarize the conversations we have. And I think, you know, for all the cultural war rhetoric, if most Americans could meet each other one on one and talk about things other than politics, they'd mostly get along. Um, And, you know, I naively maybe do still believe that there's more that unites us than divides us. And yet our politics sucks. So I'm (laughs) just hoping there's some way that we can actually get past this sucky political moment um, to a kind of politics that better resembles who we actually are as a people. Jeffrey Cabaservice, the director of political studies at the Niskanen Center, is the author of Rule and Ruin, The Downfall of Moderation and the Destruction of the Republican Party from Eisenhower to the Tea Party. You can follow him at Twitter or on Twitter at Rule and Ruin. Uh, Jeffrey, thanks so much for your time. I do appreciate it. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Let me tell you a quick story now about some farmers east of Charlotte in Stanley County who started a company called Growers Hemp, created by farmers who knew that they could make small farming work for families like theirs and help people on their wellness journey. They succeed when everybody else does. That's the model for Growers Hemp. The best quality CBD products at a price that's affordable. I take their CBD oil I have for uh, probably almost a year now, and um, I have a much more deep sleep than I ever have before. So what are you looking for? Better quality of life, balanced state of mind, a positive mental outlook, immune system resilience, uh, lower tension maybe. Add the natural alternative Grower's Hemp Full Spectrum Hemp Extract into your daily routine. I take a couple of drops before I go to bed. That's it. That's all it takes. And uh, like 10, 15 minutes before I go to bed. There are also lozenges. They have a balm that you can uh, put on your uh, you know, sore joints or whatever. It's a topical. Uh, so they have all sorts of products. Go to their website, growershemp.com, and take a look at what they can offer you. The best quality at a price that's affordable because they control the whole process. As I said, from seed all the way to shelf, Growers Hemp maintains complete control so you get the best for lower prices. And they will guide you every step along the way on your wellness journey because they know a lot of people have questions about CBD products. Now, as with all CBD products, here is the official disclaimer that government requires. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and nothing I have said is meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from your healthcare provider. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. Go to growershemp.com. And if you use the promo code PETE, you'll get 20% off. Growershemp.com. 
Growers Hemp. It's about the hemp and not the hype. Here's a story now from uh, <clears throat> Here's a story now from The Federalist. John Daniel Davidson writing a piece called Republicans have good reason not to trust the election results. He says 70% of Republicans now say that they don't believe the presidential election was free and fair. And that news, like news of the self-described Million MAGA March, was met with a mix of contempt and hysteria and condescension from Democrats and the media. But he repeats himself. Uh, by the way, unlike the uh, you know 2017 Pink Hat March in D.C., no, no, that, that was celebrated. And uh, nobody really talks about the fact that two thirds of Democrats still to this day believe that Russia hacked the election and gave the um, the presidency to Donald Trump. Right. Oh, no, no. That's that's not ever mentioned as a wild conspiracy by two thirds of Democrats. Their rough consensus, he says, is that GOP voters who still support the president are either treasonous or stupid, reinforced constantly by a brittle insistence that there was, quote, no fraud under the pretext of ensuring voter access during the pandemic, Democrats, leftist nonprofits, and activist judges across the country unleashed a flood of changes to election rules, right? North Carolina saw this, right? And it didn't matter that there were concerns raised about, hey, you're going to undermine the integrity of the election. Hey, you're expanding in an unprecedented way mail-in voting, which is inherently fraught with... uh, with avenues for fraud, right? You, you have all these different uh, weaknesses, vulnerabilities in the system. Didn't matter. States went ahead mailing out ballots based on uh, outdated voter rolls, he says, and uh, recklessly loosening oversight for how those ballots could be collected and counted. Chain of custody for absentee ballots went out the window along with whatever meager safeguards that usually apply to absentee voting. Ballot harvesting, long a tradition of corrupt Democratic political machines in places like Detroit and Philadelphia, was introduced in some places for the very first time. Taken together, all of these pandemic-inspired reforms, quote-unquote, presented an ideal opportunity for Democrats to flood absentee ballot-counting centers in major cities and run up the vote count long after the polls closed on Election Day. Now, not all of the reports of ballot counting skullduggery amount to old fra- old fashioned vote fraud. But, he says, uh, they're just as important because they undermine the integrity of an election just as much as, say, thousands of dead people voting. Even more egregious than voter fraud and harder to redress are cases where election bureaucrats or activist judges simply ignored restrictions that GOP legislatures had passed into law. Like North Carolina. North Carolina enacted laws to allow for voting during the pandemic. They loosened some things, but not all of the things that Democrats demanded. And what what did we get for it? I mean, it didn't matter that it was passed bipartisanly on, you know, in, in the legislature. And it didn't matter that the governor, a Democrat, signed it into law. No, Democrats still sued us. And a Democrat judge entered into this agreement or allowed to allow the Board of Elections run by Democrats to enter into this agreement with the Democratic lawyer representing a Democrat interest group. And they just upended all of our laws for the election. Not, well, I shouldn't say that. Not all of our laws, but several of them. And this was seen as, oh, what's wrong? You Don't you want people to vote? Well, when you ease restrictions, you by definition make it easier to defraud. I'm sorry, folks, but there isn't any other way around it. Every single restriction is going to limit somebody's ease of access in some way. If you want voting to be the simplest that it can possibly be, then 
you just send a hundred blank ballots, just send them to every single address in the state and let everybody cast as many votes as they want. This way, there, there's no way somebody could be disenfranchised. Now, is that an absurd proposition? Of course it is. So as soon as you start restricting that absurd process, you are automatically making it more difficult for somebody to vote. But we're supposed to inconvenience everybody and undermine the election integrity for everybody in order to make sure that a tiny, tiny fraction of the population is not inconvenienced. And that's the best case scenario. The worst case is that it actually uh, is all in service for fraud. Now, there is a piece by Margaret Menge, Menge, Menge. Anyway, she's a freelance journalist who's written for Columbia Journalism Review, New York Observer, the Miami Herald. And this piece is titled GOP veteran of Bush Gore uh, battle says Democratic strategy is to let courts pick election winners. And it's at insidesources.com. So, you know, maybe the suspicion of people who push, you know, Brett Kavanaugh is a rapist and Russia hacked our election um, and then they and then they they push hundreds of lawsuits all across America. Like, maybe we should be suspicious of these folks. She goes. She writes. One of the top lawyers in Bush v. Gore, a guy by the name of Jim Bopp, um, says that the onslaught of lawsuits filed by Democrats this year is a quote nationwide coordinated effort to attack state laws that guard against vote fraud. And he says their goal is to let lawyers and courts, not voters, pick the election winners. Uh, Jim Bopp developed the legal rationale for uh, that the or that the Bush team used rather to argue and win its case before the U.S. Supreme Court. And today he is watching as Democrats, led by their election lawyer Mark Elias, have filed more than 400 election-related lawsuits. He says uh, that the final step in the Democrats' process uh, was to drive the election into the courts if needed. The lawsuits leading up to the election we're preparing the way by striking down as many anti-fraud protections as possible and radically expanding the number of mail-in ballots either through universal mail-in balloting or expanding absentee and then creating opportunities afterwards for litigation that throws the determination of the results into the hands of election officials lawyers and ultimately courts lawsuits filed by democrats in pennsylvania had already succeeded in striking down laws that required uh, uh, the ballots be received by election day with a postmark, right? He says Democrats were pushing for prepaid envelopes for ballots, not because they think their supporters can't afford a 50 cent stamp, although that's what they argued, right? But because prepaid envelopes are not marked with a date stamp and therefore can be mailed after the election. See, don't tell me we're wrong to be suspicious of people who make these kinds of arguments. Like, we need these all to be pre-postage paid. Oh, well, then, you know, there's no postmark on it. Oh, well, that's okay. You know, people wouldn't think about cheating. It's it's an insult to our intelligence. Um, look, I'm not going to insult your intelligence either. I know you probably picked your real estate agent for uh, a, a good reason. I'm not here to denigrate the realtor, but... If they're not getting your house sold, maybe you should think about changing your real estate agent. Go hire Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, and they'll get your house sold fast and for more money. They got buyers already lined up.
It's true. They have buyers lined up. And if you're looking to buy a house, they have homes in all price points. So give her a call at 333-4483. That's 333-4483. Ask about the Homes for Heroes program. It is available to police officers, firefighters, healthcare professionals, educators, and members of the military, veterans, active duty, and retirees. Uh, You get 25% back from the realtor commissions, and she's given back almost $800,000 to local folks in those five professions. Call her today, 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. This piece from Beckett Adams at uh, the Washington Examiner titled media have no intentions of being tough on biden presidency this is already obvious it was already suspicious or suspected i should say and we all assume this to be the case establishment journalists and commentators have no intention of covering the incoming biden administration as vigorously and combatively as they covered the trump white house they will tell you themselves in so many words that they are perfectly content to just kick back and let the quote boring democratic president-elect and his team do their thing Politico's Anna Palmer and Jake Sherman uh, said this administration will be of the Georgetown dinner variety, a return to briefing books and policymaking by political professionals who aren't likely to try to burn down the White House over petty disagreements and jockeying to get in the good graces of the president. This is absurd. Like, you're telling me that doesn't happen? You're telling me that people don't play this kind of uh, parlor game and, the, and and do these dirty tricks that this only happened under Donald Trump. This is delusional. These people are delusional. They think that just because one engaged in it more clumsily and more transparently and obvious, right, that just because Trump was just, you know, wide open about all of this stuff and everybody was obviously engaged in this stuff, that somehow if we just, if it all goes sort of clandestine, then it's not really happening. It's just garbage. You're just all on the same team, so it's different when you guys do it. They say, in other words, if the Trump White House was like downing a vat of Tabasco sauce over the past four years, the Biden White House will be like sipping unflavored almond milk. Remember, these are the people who think that the only scandal Barack Obama had was that he wore a tan suit at a press briefing. They really believe that. I'm not kidding. They really believe this. It's like the IRS didn't happen. It's like or the the IRS spying on the or uh, targeting the Tea Party. It's like the spying on journalists didn't happen. It's like the drone strikes on American citizens didn't happen. It's like Fast and Furious didn't happen. It's like the kids in cages at the border didn't happen. It's like there were they really believe the 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 Iran deal and the pallets of cash. They 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 blank it all out. It's like it never even happened. But uh, hey, you know, uh, at least, you know, Trump is gone and the Biden administration is going to be filled with Georgetown careerists and cronies with impeccable records of failure. At least it'll be boring compared to the Trump White House, which, you know, defeated ISIS, tried to bring U.S. troops home from America's never ending unofficial military engagements. No, no. We hear about one of his appointees being a guitar player. He plays guitar really well. Uh, puff coverage like the uh, the socks that Joe Biden wore at an interview. Oh, look, it had pictures of dogs on them. 
refreshingly boring. These are all quotes, by the way, and I've got it all linked at the Patreon page so you can check out the prep sheet. Um, It's really weird to see this kind of calm, rational, coordinated messaging again. Yeah, yeah. Nothing sets the professional journalist's heart aflutter like a competent propaganda campaign promoted by lifetime Washington careerists on behalf of an incoming president. That's really what they want to see, you know? Yes, the Biden presidency will be different in that members of the press will no longer obsess over trivial palace intrigue stories, unverified gossip from disgruntled staffers, bogus tips from congressional aides and intelligence agents, and faulty bombshells sourced entirely to anonymous sources, including those familiar with the president's thinking. But that does not mean it's going to be scandal-free or boring at all. On the contrary, given that Biden is filling his White House with Obama alumni, we can probably expect more scandals along the lines of extrajudicial dronings, disastrous regime changes, and illegal domestic surveillance campaigns spearheaded by perjurers. Yeah, is anybody ever going to be held accountable for spying on the Trump campaign? No? Okay. By the way, the liberal media effort to hide Joe Biden's related scandals um, from voters and bury the good news from the Trump administration probably cost Trump the election. What have I been saying for years? Elections are about what media make them. Had voters known about the issues that were swirling around Joe Biden and and, um, his son and the laptop and all that, plus also successes of the Trump White House, including the Middle East peace deals, job growth, energy independence, There's actually now people in these surveys conducted by two different outfits. They find enough people actually would have voted Trump and not Biden, and that would have given Trump 311 electoral votes. More than enough to win. Ripping the media, Brent Bozell, the founder of the Media Research Center, said, quote, had they done their jobs, Trump won the election. This is not happenstance. This is not coincidence. What's more, he says the media had a partner in Twitter, which... um, you know, went after Trump's family and the campaign, censoring them more than 260 times. In one survey by McLaughlin and Associates, enough of Biden's voters would have switched their selection had they known about Hunter Biden's money scandal. Um, and in that poll, 4.6% of Biden voters said they would have not selected him from uh, had they been aware of uh, the connection with uh, China as well. So, And then the other one by the polling company found 70% of voters, 17% of voters would have shifted away from Biden had they known about Biden's scandals and Trump's achievements. Elections are about what media make them. All right, that's a wrap for this episode. Please remember, subscribe to this podcast if you enjoy it. If not, uh, then, then don't. That's totally fine. But I would prefer you do. Give it a positive review if you think of it. And consider becoming a patron of the program as well. You'll get cool stuff and you get exclusive content. You can participate in our live streams that we do every week. Links are all at thepetecalendarshow.com. Thanks so much for the support. Thanks for listening. Talk with you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs>